Welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. You've done a ton of fascinating things in the alts world, on the investment side, at the firm you're at now. Would love to hear how you got to the alts world and what you're doing now at FCLT. Sure. So I started off my career in the asset management industry at a hedge fund. It was a long, short equity-focused fund. If you think about where we were at that point, I'm going to give away my age a little bit. It was right on the verge of the financial crisis. If you remember what was happening in markets, all of a sudden, we woke up one day and Lehman Brothers had failed and shorting in bank securities was no longer allowed. You could imagine being at a financial sector-only long-short fund that had just had half of its book made redundant was a real interesting way to start your career. From there, I went to uh, long-only mutual fund management, and I was a portfolio manager for quite a number of years looking at global large-cap equities and equity income strategies, and then left and went to a little clean tech company as their first head of investor relations and corporate communications just after their IPO on NASDAQ. I did that uh, for several years and eventually joined Focusing Capital on the Long Term, which is a think tank that was launched in the summer of 2016 by the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, McKinsey, BlackRock, Dow Chemical, and Tata Sons. The mission is really to think about pulling the biggest pools of capital in the world together to really roll up your sleeves, do some practical work on how we could short circuit and rewire capital markets to be more supportive of longer term business and investment decision making and thinking about Having that long-term perspective really embedded from the outset in the way that capital markets value the behaviors of companies and investors and reward those behaviors and, and how that underpins sustainable economic growth, really, and better outcomes for savers and communities on the one hand and for companies and investors on the other. I want to touch on something based on what you're doing now in terms of this interplay between public and private markets. The public markets and how people value things more on a quarterly basis informs how and when companies decide to go public. In the venture world, we've seen value creation mainly be captured in the private markets as a result of that. People didn't want to go public until they felt they accrued enough value. And there were reasons why private companies were staying private longer. Yesterday, we saw a company, Forge, go IPO. Uh, that basically enables unicorns to access liquidity, their employees, the, the early investors, the founders, et cetera, in private markets. How do you think about the interplay between private market companies staying private longer and public markets investors thinking with a longer term mindset as you help educate them, here's how we should think about things longer term and here's how it could impact both public and private markets, given that they probably have exposure to both of those markets. Yeah. One of the things we get asked a lot is how can we make public markets more attractive? How can we make it more appealing to be a public company? And the reason that you want it to be more appealing to be a public company is because broader swaths of the community can participate in the upside and the growth potential from public markets. When all of the 
returns accrue in the private markets and the venture private space, the proportion of the population that can benefit from that growth is, is much smaller. So when you think about growing the pie and the participation in capital markets, it's really important to have robust public markets to deliver on that dream. I think one of the things that's been really fascinating the, the past 10 years, right, capital was super cheap. It made it really easy to stay private for much longer because a lot of the time, the reason for IPO was because you needed that capital to, to finance your next wave of growth. That isn't true anymore. What we have in the alt space is plenty of capital and plenty of willingness to continue holding assets in, in a private format. Um, that could be changing with the rise in interest rates and the inflationary pressure. You might start to see some of that capital dry up, and that could potentially result in public markets looking a little bit more appealing. But I think the important thing from a long-term investments perspective that I've seen is as a real shift that's happened over the last 10 years is that the LPs, if you think about the big pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, are starting to really blur the line. So there used to be real siloed asset classes, venture capital, growth equity, private equity, public equity. And those lines are going away because those big owners have realized that they owned the same asset throughout the course of its maturity curve. And every time it changed hands, they were paying for that. That meant that their beneficiaries were, were losing out because they were paying these fees at every point along the capital structure or every shift. So now what a lot of those funds are doing is thinking critically about how can I create a strategy that allows me to own businesses I really believe in, regardless of where they are in the maturity curve and what the format looks like. How can I hold on to this company that I thought was fantastically compelling in my VC portfolio and keep it throughout its life cycle? And maybe that means eventually I hold it in, the, in my public equity portfolio. But how do I make sure to, to break down some of those silos and blur some of those lines so that what I'm providing is long-term growth capital to a business, regardless of the format that it comes in? You're bringing up a great point. Shopify is a great example of that, where if, if venture investors had been able to or had decided to hold in public markets after it went public, they would have achieved another venture-like return better than most venture funds if they had held in public markets, which obviously takes a different skill set. I, I want to touch on this point that you made, because I think when you talk about funds deciding to restructure themselves in a way where they can hold great assets across private and public markets, my mind goes to Sequoia, who just did that. They restructured mm. their fund. What do you make of that? And, and do you think that's a trend that now more VCs will follow as a result, number one? And of course, the tail wags the dog. So will that be something that more LPs want or demand from their private markets managers? So that's why we might see that more as well. Sequoia is an interesting example because they're on the manager side and they have the skill set across their funds. So what they did was basically just put a bunch of those skills together into one package, which seems much cleaner, quite frankly, right? The thing I was talking about was something that's actually happening on the internally managed portfolio side for the big pension and sovereign wealth funds. Like GIC is an example. They have a growth technology fund that owns things from venture stage and can continue to hold it all the way through IPO as a public company. So more and more of the largest owner organizations in the world are thinking about how do we bring those skills internally and manage those assets ourselves um, 
rather than go to a Sequoia, for example. Interesting. So you think that many of the larger firms, and we've seen this with CPPIB and Silver Lake, I believe, as well, when they collaborated on private markets. Yep. And you've seen a lot of larger pension plans and institutional investors actually shrink their GP relationships and focus on a smaller number of them, but do more with them or do directs and co-invest, et cetera. Do you think that's a trend that we'll continue to see so that they can harmonize their public and private books and then, to your point, reduce fees as a result of that? Yes, I do. I think some of it is being driven by the cost structure, but I think a lot of it is being driven by a desire for simplification. They, they want strategic partners that they can go really deep with and establish long-term real trusted relationships with. And, and that'll be a shorter list of folks than it used to be. On that point, how does this impact how those firms think about talent acquisition? Because that's a very different skill set. Hiring a direct investing team is very different than hiring someone who is allocating to funds and is picking managers. So how do you think that that gets impacted as more larger investors think about their portfolios like this? I think there is a huge talent war at the moment. And what you're seeing is teams who have generated real strong results at some of the bigger firms who would normally go off and start their own standalone. I was at a big private equity firm and now my team's really crushed it and we're going to go launch our own fund and it's going to be the Ariel Michael Fund. Um, what's happening now is the LPs are having real conversations with them that used to be, I'll seed your new fund, but sometimes now are, why don't you come do that internally for us? And you can take some outside capital, too, if it works out and we establish a good record. There are these interesting hybrid things coming up that I think could be a fascinating evolution of the GPLP relationship. How do you think that GPs need to react to this as well? And does this trend really benefit the larger GP platforms, the Blackstones, KKRs, Silver Lakes, and asset managers who really are multi-product asset managers at this point? And LPs want to centralize their relationships with a smaller number of those firms and just do more with them? Or does this really impact the smaller GPs in a bigger way than it does the larger ones? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I personally love to see the small scrappy competition that happens in the old space amongst GPs. And I'd be really sad if that went away, if it all turned into kind of consolidated behemoths. I think that would be a, a poorer outcome for everyone. So there is an interesting tension there because I don't think the LPs necessarily want that either. They are doubling down on some core strategic partnerships, but at the same time, they don't want to have no other options. And they're, they're always on the lookout for new talent. So it's going to be interesting. I think there could be some unintended consequences from some of this that your question raises. And I, I don't have the crystal ball honestly, for how that might play out. It's fascinating to think about what this means in terms of the evolution of the alt space as we think about the way fund managers think about their business, where people go for talent, because you touched on this too, capital raising is a big part of a GP's business. And if they can get that capital from larger institutional allocators, but have a single relationship or go in-house, then they don't have to spend a lot of their time on capital raising. So does that become something that's such an attraction that it's worth that trade-off? It, it could be. I think one of the other interesting things that we've started to see is a real look at what the terms are inside that LP agreement. What are the partnership terms and how can we make those terms 
drive better alignment over longer time horizons that really embeds the relationship in a way that makes it stickier. And that's good for a GP, knowing that they have committed capital for a longer time horizon. It's also good for an LP because honestly, due diligence is an expensive process. And diligencing a new fund or a new manager on a constant cycle is resource intense. If we could get to a place where there were those longer term strategic relationships, I think that there's benefits on both sides. So how do you think both GPs and LPs should position themselves in the future as these trends continue to unfold in the alts world? I certainly can't tell anyone what their business model should be. But I'll give you an example of what we're hearing from some of our other members. We sit in a unique position because we have global asset owners, asset managers, and multinational public companies inside of FCLT Global's membership. We see across the capital markets and across the investment value chain, a lot of what we think about is what are the pressures and pain points that are delivering poorer outcomes over shorter time periods? And how can we think critically about what practical actions could short circuit those pressures and and pain points. Some of those things are really breaking down some of the silos. Elizabeth Burton at Hawaii Pension Fund has talked a bit about this. How do we make asset classes go away and just think about the liquidity of our investments and the liquidity profile of our portfolio and the risks that that presents and make sure that we're getting paid for risks that are appropriate? And how, how do we make sure we're eliminating uncompensated risks in our portfolio? I think the more that there's that holistic kind of 360 degree top-down view when it comes from the asset owner community, the more that will drive a shift in behavior on the part of their external managers. If you know that you're not just being compared to other private equity firms, for example, but also to the broader range of choices in the alternative space that a fund owner could allocate to, that makes the way that you talk about your strategy and the way you talk about your competitive advantages shift. The the successful managers in the future will be very good at explaining not just why my private equity fund is better than any other private equity fund you could select from, but why my private equity fund is better than the whole range of alternatives that that additional incremental dollar of capital could go towards. As you see the black stonification of venture, not just private equity, with Sequoia, with Andreessen becoming an RIA. Do you think that we will start to see a similar theme that we've seen in private equity with the Silver Lakes partner with the CPPIBs or LP teams have a select number of relationships? Do you think we'll start to see that happen as venture becomes more platform driven as well. And we're going to start to see more larger venture platforms also. Yeah. I think what we've realized from the data in venture is that as much as we like to think that it's different from other strategies, it has very similar characteristics. If you look at the number of investments in a VC fund that actually deliver 90% or more of the returns, it's like 5% or 10% of the investments deliver all of the returns. That's actually exactly the same proportion of investments in an active equity strategy that deliver the returns. If you think about the way that people treat these various strategies and asset classes, it makes sense to me, you called it the Blackstoneification, but it makes sense to me that we're seeing people start to think a little bit more holistically about 
about breaking down some of those silos. Do you think that's a healthy thing for an industry like venture, which has traditionally been, and, and no knock on venture, I myself am a venture capitalist, but more of a cottage industry. And now it feels to some extent to be going more the way banking matured, maybe consulting matured, and, and now private equity has matured. I think it's probably inevitable, but I also feel that's a little bit of a bittersweet outcome. <laughs> it was more fun the other way, I'm sure. I've never been in venture capital, but just as someone looking in from the outside, it seems like it was way more fun. I, I think there is a maturity curve to every strategy, and I see that happening in venture the same way it happened other places. And I'm sure as we think about digital assets and cryptocurrencies, the same thing will happen there too. Is, is this something that we've kind of brought upon ourselves by making alts become such an interesting and attractive asset class? And to some extent, look, that's happened because of lower interest rate environment and other reasons too. But is that just part of the natural evolution of alts as it becomes a larger part of people's portfolios and the, the growth in private assets, not just from GPs growing their businesses and growing AUM, but then there's also more investors being able to access alts now, the individual investor, the wealth manager. Have we brought this upon ourselves in terms of growing the industry and making it bigger and this becomes inevitable because of all of that? The democratization of venture capital. I think the thing that's actually driving this is more to do with the reevaluation of what our definition of liquidity is and a real shift in comfort amongst huge segments of the allocator universe with illiquid investments. People are much more comfortable today than they were even five or 10 years ago holding illiquid securities. I think it has to do with a, the evolution of the view of risk management and also the evolution of the transparency that the industry is willing to provide. I, I trade illiquidity for transparency, and that transparency gives me comfort and allows me to go back to my trustees or my board um, and tell them that the things in my portfolio are appropriate and, and think more critically about how they impact other things that are happening in my portfolio. It, it was probably inevitable, but I think it's also been driven by a shift in comfort level with liquidity profiles overall. And that's good for the industry. What do you think is next for the world of alts? And maybe it's tied to the evolution of how we think about illiquidity versus liquidity, productization of liquidity. I think that's right. I think that the most interesting thing, and I'm hugely biased because I'm the head of research at an organization called Focusing Capital on the Long Term, so the most interesting thing that I've started to see is an evolution of what we think of as a life cycle fund, a fund that can do exactly what you and I were talking about at the beginning. It's almost like a special purpose vehicle or a go anywhere fund where I don't have to say no anymore to something that might be a square peg in a round hole. If it's a compelling opportunity with a compelling risk return profile, I'm going to develop a pool of capital that can take on that opportunity in a strategic way. And I'm not going to care if it's venture or if it's growth equity or if it's private equity or if it's in the public markets. And I'm also not going to care where it is in the capital structure. The idea is to own good growth businesses for longer periods of time. I think EQT has done this recently and Bailey Gifford has done it too, where they're launching these long dated funds that have the ability to invest across the maturity curve, but also across the capital structure. So we can pick our spot. Do we want to be equity? Do we want to be credit? Do we want to be debt? for this business that we find compelling. And we can also pick our spot across that maturity curve. I think the intersection there in those long dated funds is really, really interesting. That's a fascinating point. What do you think it will take for 
institutions to be comfortable rolling into crypto in a big way? So I'm going to answer a different question. Uh, <laughs> I think the real thing that gets institutions comfortable is actually thinking about the benefit of blockchain technology for them as a financial organization. The thing that has astonished me is that we still aren't using blockchain for share transactions, the technology itself, not cryptocurrency. But right now we have T plus one settlement company is basically has to contract with Broadridge to tell them who their shareholders are at any given time. And a lot of the time there's there are big question marks around some of those things, depending on who's loaned their shares out short or something like that. Blockchain could fix all of that. If I'm a public company, I could know in an instant if my shares were traded on, on a blockchain technology, exactly who my shareholders are down to the final share at any given moment. I think that would really revolutionize corporate democracy in a way that we haven't seen. I'm more curious about financial institutions adopting it from that perspective than not to say that alternative currencies and just DeFi aren't fascinating too, but it just strikes me as really puzzling why we haven't yet gone down that path of using the technology for things like stock settlement. I think it's coming and it's a long time coming. It's something I've spent time on for a number of years now and thought about and actually thought this was a great application of the technology as well. So this is quite a prescient comment that you make because I think it's on its way. I hope you're right, Michael. Awesome. Well, Ariel, thank you so much for coming on this special episode of All Goes Mainstream. It was a pleasure to have you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Look forward to talking again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going